This is the Believe Crew Podcast, and the business is you. Being an entrepreneur, no matter what stage of the journey, requires personal growth to sustain your success and create the ultimate life of abundance. I'm Jamie White, founder of Believe Crew and your host. Join me as I interview coaches, entrepreneurs, and authors that inspire us to go where they have gone. Be inspired today to grow and be the best you. Well, hello and welcome. And today we have with us Mark King. And my experience with Mark was he was actually the first one-on-one coach that I ever hired. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And so it was um, a great experience right from the beginning. And really, um, it came from listening to a Patrick Lencioni book, Getting Naked, the business fable getting naked. And I remember listening to that thinking, I want to meet someone that thinks like this and does this kind of work. And then within a year, someone had given me your name and uh, several, several sessions later, here we are. So I would love to hear from you, Mark, more about you, your business, and how you got into your business, just lots of questions. So can you start us off with something about you and your business and how you got started? Um, Yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting. Um, So I I have this, uh, Krista and I, my wife Krista and I, we have this little thing where every once in a while I'll stop and I'll tell her stories. And she loves me to tell stories about us. Um, And so uh, I actually did this a couple weeks ago. And I was just kind of reflecting on on my career in specific and kind of telling her, sharing with Krista all the parts and pieces um, that God had put together, you know, in my life, in our lives. So um, so I am going to go back. So uh, when I was a, a young man of about eight, um, my parents were, were not churched. Uh, they did not go to church. They did not go to know God. They did not know Christ. And uh, actually, my father was um, um, uh, a Roman Catholic at one point, but got mad at them. And so that was the end of that. Um, And so when I was eight, uh, every once in a while, not all the time, but on Sunday morning, instead of doing what the family did, I would get up, I'd get dressed, and I'd go try to find a family in the neighborhood that wanted to go to church. And I'd go to church with them. Okay. And my... My parents thought this was kind of crazy. Why would anybody want to go to church, right? So, um, you know, that continued. And uh, then I met my uh, best friend. And we lived on the same block together for a number of years. He moved away, Jim. He moved away. And we reconnected uh, our freshman year of high school. And he happened to be going to a Baptist church in Lombard, Illinois at the time. And he invited me. And... So I went, well, I mean, it was like, holy cow, I've, I've got to be here. And so, you know, from my family's perspective, here I am starting out my freshman year of high school, and now I'm going to church Wednesday night, Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night. And they're like, what are you doing? You know, and uh, I think they expected the more traditional type things. And here I was going to church. So my uh, freshman year, I remember I was in a Sunday school class, and I, um, um, uh, Phil Miller was his name, 
and uh, he brought me to Christ right in front of a group of my peers and I accepted Christ and I can I can remember just feeling so excited and I couldn't wait to get home and, and tell my parents I had, had accepted Christ and so I burst in the door and I said mom dad you'll never believe it the greatest thing in the world has happened to me I accepted Christ as my savior you should do it too and they, and they proceeded to decide that I had become a member of a cult. And I was at that point banned from going back to church. So here I am, a baby Christian. Um, I just accepted Christ. And my parents, right, you have to honor your mother and your father. Wow. Uh, banned me from going back to church. Wow. So, you know, that was really hard. Uh, but the what was really interesting is that the separation from my parents started really clearly at that spot and i don't tell many people this but from the age of 11 um my mom was a very fearful woman i used to come home and um, she would want to talk about the things she was struggling with in her life and um and this was every day after school for years i did this Okay, and um, this is when I learned about when people are so fearful and they're so committed to protecting their fear that that protection of their fear is greater than their desire to progress. And that's where I fully began to understand. I didn't know at the time, but I began to understand the re resistor mentality. You know, it was really because uh, my mom just couldn't. She couldn't get out of the loop. So I did that for, I probably did that for six or seven years. Um, now I had other things going on. I mean, I was working, um, you know, 25 hours a week. I was participating in sports. So I can't say I did it every night, but usually if I came home from school, that was usually the first conversation. And we used to spend, you know, a couple hours at it every time it happened. So, you know, in hindsight, that was preparation. God was preparing me for something. Uh, then I went off to college, started going back to church, met my lovely wife, Krista, which was great. Um, and I actually uh, began to, I uh, met her family, uh, my, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law. And I started to, my father-in-law, um, here I was, this, you know, he and I couldn't have been more different. I grew up outside of Chicago, never been on a farm. You know, didn't know that life at all. And uh, he was a pastor. He was also a missionary. Um, his hobby was uh, farming, you know, all this kind of stuff. So really, we didn't have anything in common. But he, he, the thing that my father-in-law did for me more than anything else is he believed in me before I believed in myself. And he taught me that leadership trait and what it really, because there was no reason for him to believe. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. He could just treated me like a potential son-in-law at some point. But he didn't do that. He kind of took me under his wing. And um, he was, <laughs> he, I, don't, I don't know, I tell the story all the time, but I don't know if anybody else has this. But you know how you kind of do, I'm sure you had it, Jamie. You do the first thing with your mother-in-law, right? And Kevin did the first thing with his father-in-law and you know, and I think it, you know, what would it would typically be? Well, you might go to a ball game or you might go fishing or something like that. Um, so 
I was uh, I was visiting for the weekend at their home in Wilmot, and um, I got there Friday night. And my father-in-law goes, or my future father-in-law at the time, he says, "Hey, would you mind helping me on the farm?" I said, "Sure." I said, uh, "Now it's the middle of January, so you know I'm wondering what does it mean help you on on the farm in the middle of January." And he said, uh, "He said, yeah, we just got some stuff to do." Uh, I said, "What time do you want to leave tomorrow morning?" He said, six. You know, and I'm like, six o'clock in the morning. I came here to rest, not to. But anyway, we got up at six, got in the car, and we headed to the farm. And um, we get there about nine o'clock in the morning, and it's like, like it's the middle of January. It's windy. I think the um, it was 16 degrees, and the wind chill was zero. So we're going out into the barn at zero degrees. Now, I won't go into the all the gory details, but the first thing I ever did with my father-in-law was slaughter a cow. Oh, my word. <laughs> you got right so, in. Right in. Right in. And he threw me right into the middle of it, you know. And, uh, and so we spent the entire day, you know, preparing this cow for the butcher. And uh, like I say, I won't get into the gory details. But at the end of the day, we looked like serial killers. I mean, we were covered from head to toe and we're driving back from uh, central Wisconsin back to Wilmot and he's got this he had, at the time he had this old Plymouth Aspen station wagon right and uh, we're driving down the road and we're we're just at where uh, 494 or 43 sorry 43 and National Avenue meet on the west side of town I'm sorry that is 494 anyway uh, we right, go right by the exit, and all of a sudden, we run out of gas, okay? Now, it's at this point, it's 9, 9.30 on a Saturday night. It's dark out, and we start walking down, you know, the highway to go back to the exit to get to a gas station. And I'll never forget, we walked into the, I think it was at the time of Super America, and... Um, um, the guy, I'll never forget the face on the guy when he walked into, the, because like I said, we're wearing coveralls and we're from, you know, covered in head to toe with, you know, tallow and blood and just hook. And, uh, the guy was reluctant to sell us some gas, but we got some gas, got back into the car and we're able to make it home. He didn't want to be part of the getaway. Oh man. Yes. He, I, he was... He was he was truly scared that we walked into his gas station that night. But anyway, so you know uh, the thing about my father-in-law is he invited me into his world and he believed in me before I believed in myself. And then, uh, lo and behold, I, I was a radio guy. I loved radio. I grew up during the Rock Wars in Chicago, and whether we had radio stations, three radio stations back then, it just some fabulous entertaining and I just wanted to be part of that world so I started to uh, work on improving my voice I wanted to because I my voice wasn't very good back then I and, and this was late in high school and um, uh, you know it was kind of marble mouthed and uh, I didn't speak all that clearly and so I took some time to really work on my diction and how I pronounce and being able to speak from your diaphragm and all that kind of stuff so I got into radio, and uh, I had a—I I would say I had a, a good career. I was on the air for a while, and then um, uh, the station I was working for at the time didn't really 
they, they no longer liked my style, and so they put me on overnights. And overnights for about six months just about killed me. Um, and this was a suburban Chicago radio station, so you know it wasn't the big time or anything like that. And I went to a uh, just a resource, a general manager at a, a Chicago radio station, and I told them about you know here here's what I've done. What I'd like to do is own radio stations. What should I do next in my career? And he said, Mark, I think you need to get into sales. And I was like, oh, man, sales? I don't want to be a sales guy. I never liked anything about sales. I never uh, was attracted uh, by the sales profession. But he said, you know, if you're going to own a radio station, you need to know how this place makes money. And so you need to get into sales. So I went back to my boss, um, and uh, so Dave had only ever known me as a guy who wore jeans and t-shirts, because that's all we ever wore on, or nobody saw us, right? Right, you either have a face for TV or a face for radio. And um, so I went to Dave, and, and I came into him, and I said, hey, after my shift, I said, hey, Dave, um, I want to get into sales. And he goes, Mark, I, I've never seen you in a suit. And I said, okay, stay here. So I went home. I put on my only suit. And I came back and I said, okay, here you go. This is what I look like in a suit. He says, okay, you're a sales guy. You start two weeks from Monday. So that's how I got my sales career started. <laughs> it was because I, I came back and showed Dave what I look like in a suit, you know. Um. So I got into sales. Now, I will say this. Today, I look back, and uh, I think sales is one of the greatest professions on the planet. If you're, if you're truly a great salesperson, and you treat it with the honor and uh, professionalism it deserves, um, it is a great career, and it's a great way to help other people. But so many people treat it poorly. And uh, when I first started, uh, I love talking about radio and how radio could benefit somebody, but I really hated the rejection. You know, my expressive uh, likes to be liked and the lack of approval. Um, I can remember uh, after a week of calls. Now, our, our sales manager back then, he was a good guy, but he was a tough guy. He expected us to go down five to six uh, personal face-to-face -face appointments a day plus make uh, 30 contact calls a day. Uh, but when it, when it got to Friday afternoon, I could hardly stand it anymore. I can, I can remember pulling off the road and just, you know, sitting back for three hours because I, the rejection was so high. And really, the reason um, I went through that in hindsight now is that uh, I really think God was teaching me two things. One is... Um, you have to make a choice about whether or not you're going to give in to your fears or not and whether or not you're going to let that stop you. And then the second thing is he really taught me through that experience uh, how to communicate more effectively with people. You know, when you're doing them five to six appointments a day and you're dealing with so many different people, you learn really quick how to adapt your, you know, your communication to serve them all. So, you know, that, those were some of the major milestones that uh, God allowed me to walk. And then in, um, 
1989, October of 1989, uh, Krista, I was the I was the top dog at the radio station I was working for. Um, we thought we were living the the American dream, you know. And um, Krista was pregnant. Krista, we had chosen uh, that Krista would be a stay-at-home mom. Um, she's a mom through and through, so she wanted to stay at home. We had three kids at home under nine. And um, lo and behold, she's pregnant with our fourth. And the baby is due at the, uh, was it was due at the end of November. This is the end of October. And um, Krista realizes she came home from a, on a trip. We, the doctor said we could send her away before, uh, you know, a few weeks before the baby came. And she realized something had changed, something was wrong. So we went to the doctor and uh, went to the hospital actually here. And um, uh, uh, she's, in, she's in with the resident and we're, we're doing the ultrasound. And uh, the resident says, uh, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. And so here we are. Um, about one month away from having another baby in the house. And uh, Dirk is his name. Dirk had passed away because of a cord accident. Uh, his cord got too long and he passed through it and created a knot. And as he grew, you know, it just killed him, took his life. So, wow, boom, you know, here we are, a relatively young couple, three kids at home, under nine, and uh, we are in shock. We had never been through anything like this before. And we'd gotten um, a piece of advice uh, that first day. Um, the grief counselor at, um, at the hospital came to us and said, okay, things like this usually do one of two things. They, are, they either drive couples together or drive them apart, or and or they drive them to God or drive them away from God. Choose wisely. And, and I'm so thankful that uh, we were given that advice because we chose to come together and chose to, you know, seek what was God, uh, what was God wanting to do in this. Well, anyway, I called my boss and I said, hey, I'm going to be out for about five days. There's just some things that I have to take care, care of here with my family and the hospital and everything else. And on top of it, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law were getting married that weekend. So this is all going on at the same time. And um, so I told him I'm, I'm going to be out of pocket for a while. So um, the next day, the next morning, I get up and I realize, ah, there's two things I have to take care of at the office. Um, I'm sure everybody has experienced this. If you're working at any time, something like this comes up. And all of a sudden, if you don't deal with these two things, it's going to be a big problem. So I uh, raced back to the office, and it took me 10 minutes to take care of this stuff, and I'm leaving uh, quickly to go back to the hospital. And my boss stops me in the hallway. Um, now, as I said, this was the biggest challenge we had ever been through as a couple. And um, we just had, you know, from, from our perspective, a, a child die, you know. And... My boss stops me in the hall as I'm leaving. And he and remember, I'm the top salesperson in the company. He goes, hey, Mark, I know you got a lot going on, but when are you going to get back to normal? And that was really not the right question for him to ask. 
and I didn't answer him. But as I um, walked out the door and got on the elevator, I remember thinking to myself, uh, I'm never getting back to normal. Right, right. So that was really the catalyzing event for what's next. Um, so anything you want to share or ask about? So that's that brought me to the point where I knew knew I needed to make a change. Yeah, well, there were a couple of things that came up that um, I know you've shared with me over the years, and I just wanted to kind of touch on a little bit. You mentioned about transcending um, our parents when oh, yeah. we've been yeah. coaching together yeah. before, and so I heard you basically say that there was that moment early on for you where you recognized my parents may not have my best interests at heart. And so I wouldn't mind if you would speak a little bit to that, but I really love um, where you've taken us so far in the journey. And so I don't want to distract from that before we get into, you know, how you really got into coaching and the business of coaching, but just taking a moment to kind of highlight and touch on the importance of that, that you've seen over the years. Yeah, that was a real hard one. Um, and, you know, and I've talked to others since then, and they, you know, basically their conclusion was, so technically you were abandoned. You know, now I didn't, and I, you know, I think my parents loved me, cared for me in, in the way they could. You know, um, they were fearful people. And, you know, ultimately, even if you try to do the right thing for others, if you do it for self-serving reasons, it doesn't work. It doesn't count. And so, you know, what really happened um, is that when that split occurred, when they took something that I felt was so precious and basically set it aside, you know, and that separation occurred, then now we're in a different space. And I think, you know, the, the things we've talked about as relates to this, Jamie, is that you we tend to look up to our parents, right? And we tend to see them as, very influential and leader-like in our life. And when you connect with a leader, any leader, you know, at some level, I think everybody has an expectation that the leader is going to have my best interest at heart. Okay. And what I realized is because of my, you know, my parents' fear is they really couldn't do that for me. So over the course of time, it turned into selfishness. You know, there were being selfish. And again, I, I you know, I, yes, are they responsible? But I do I understand why. But for years, I was mad at them. You know, and, and I thought, wait a second, how can you not believe in me? How can you not support me in this? And what happened uh, when this and the this ties together to this story is, um, Ultimately, my parents, uh, they struggled with this for us. But really, what it was more of is that um, they struggled with the grief of it for themselves. Okay? Are you referring to that moment when you lost the baby that now you're bringing us forward and there was... Bringing this to them, yeah. They were around then and they found out about this and they had their own grief about it. And that got in the way right. of them being able to have your best interests at heart again. Yeah. And what I realized, the, the connection to, between the two. So from 15 to 34, I was really mad at them because I wanted to, for them to support me. 
and my family. As I thought good parents would, right? Um, but then I realized when this happened, when we lost the baby, and I saw their reaction to it, and that they were more consumed in their grief than they were concerned with our grief, right? What I realized in that moment, and you know, people may disagree with this thought process, but what I realized in that moment is I had transcended my parents. And I realized that, you know, uh, that, and it, it was very disappointing on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was uh, liberating as well, is because I, was, I no longer was uh, angry with them. Uh, I was actually more empathetic for them. Right, able to but have what compassion. Realized, yeah. What's that? Able to have compassion. Yeah, yeah, my compassion went up. And that is a recommendation I make for people today is that when you see somebody's fear, turn up your compassion as much as you can. And that was the lesson I needed to learn. I was, you know, um, again, some people disagree with this, but um, I was a, I was hoping for, expecting for support. And um, in that moment, they were unable to give it. And it was at that moment I realized that mm -hmm. I had transcended them. So and I think that's one of the hard lessons in leadership is that when you look up to somebody and you know you want them to be there for you and you want them to continue to show the way and it's like you know if they show the way then that gives me hope yes. that I can yeah you know uh, but then that all went away yeah. and I think it's a very um, uh, and in, in many cases it's a very sad and disappointing time this touches on something that I've been communicating more you know as I start to even have awareness of it I feel like um, often parents want to do what's best for their kids and they just want so much for their kids and they're willing to spend money, they're willing to invest in them, time, resources, and then um, not realizing that often what the kids want is to see their parents living that so that they believe it's possible. And that's something that is sort of flipping the switch on the thought process like, are your mm -hmm. kids looking for you to invest in them or are they looking for you to invest in yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we want, we, what do we want our parents to do to show the way, right? And um, the so the, the kind of the rest of the story with my parents, where this was really revealed is that um, <laughs> we got pregnant again, okay? And we lost a child again. Now, it wasn't at eight months. It was at more like five months. Wow. Stillbirth. <clears throat> and, of course, what do you do? You call your parents and tell them what's happened. And, and this was the response uh, from my mom. I'll never forget it on the phone call. I said, Mom, you know, we were kind of waiting to tell everybody, but Krista was pregnant. And uh, we miscarried. You know, we lost that child. And I remember her saying, she says, oh, she said, oh, Mark, she said, how could you do this to me? What? <laughs> yeah, how could you do this to me? And it was because uh, the losing, losing Dirk had caused so much grief and pain that she struggled with how we could even entertain the thought of getting pregnant again. So that's when I realized it wasn't about us anymore. It wasn't about me. It was about her. 
and uh, she didn't want to go through that grief uh, or mourn like that again. And you know, and I think that's to your point, Jamie. I think that's part of the responsibility we have as parents. I mean, um, you know, and it really goes back to what my father-in-law did for me is our role as parents is to believe in our children before they believe in themselves. And they're then they may draw a very different circle in life than we do, right? But and they may go through some very significant challenges. Um, in the end their life is their choice, right? I mean, our role as parents changes as they get older, right? We don't tell them what to do. Uh, we try to do our do the best to help them. Uh, live the life they want to live, and um, and so um, this is about being willing to go through the challenges they're going to have and their challenges they're going to face, and you can't always predict what that's going to be, but you know we stand firm in those moments. So you shared, I think, with me the bike story. The bike story. Oh, with Heather. Who believes in you? I thought this came from you, but maybe it wasn't. Like thinking about someone teaching you how to ride a bike. Oh, okay. And yeah, you don't, I don't always know. Mm-hmm. They didn't know. You don't know how to ride the bike, but then someone holds it and just says, ride. <laughs> right. They believe in you. Go. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I, I think it's in those moments we have to be, and we're going we're gonna to walk alongside especially from a leadership or a coaching perspective, you know, that's really what the work is. It's, you know, I, I hear of these coaches today who are trying to tell people, well, this is what you do and everything will work out. I never really see that work, you know, and I think this is about coming alongside other, other people and, you know, um, being able to believe in them before they believe in themselves and also also suffer the grief as they suffer grief and celebrate joy as they celebrate joy. I mean, it's, it's not removing the challenges they face, but it's believing them through the challenges they face. And um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's really more the work. And the fact is just to, wrap up this piece about transcendence is my parents could no longer do that for me because it was too painful for them. Yeah. So then can you take us back to the early days of when you decided the radio station is no longer for you and what was next? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So out of this experience, I lost all my, um, all my passion for radio went away. And now I look back and radio today is really, just a, a fraction of what it was back then, but um, I lost all passion. So I, you know, I really started asking God, "What do you? What am I here for, God? What do you want me to do?" You know, and that, and that question, my boss asked me, you know, uh, when are you going to get back to normal? Really was seared into my thought process. So I started, I started looking. I started to go on a journey to try to find what I was supposed to do in life. And one of the first things I did is, man, did my reading uh, chunk up a notch. Um, You know, I started reading four books a week. I knew that I had to change how I was thinking about things. So 
along with studying the Bible, you know, I started just reading a lot. How did you pick what uh, naked? What's that? How did you pick what books yeah. that you were reading, and where did you find them? Yeah, I mean, some of it was just recommendations from other people I trusted. You know, uh, some of it was just my own research. Um, a book, you know, books that really helped me. So one of the first books I ever read when I was on this path, uh, path was The Greatest Salesman in the World by Og Mandino, okay? And it's really not about selling per se, uh, but it's about, you know, he really talked about how you have to really um, work on your mind, you know, and how you think about yourself and how you think about others. You know, so often today you, you hear of people that are struggling with, uh, serving others and it's because they think they have to be somebody else in order to do that and that's not true you know God created each person for a purpose he's given each of us gifts and talents to fulfill our purpose and work prepared and advanced to do so the one thing I really work with people today is hey be who you were created to be you know that's okay that's good and that a lot of it has to do with the disc but then be able to adapt yourself to the situation you're in uh, and do the right thing for others, regardless of how it makes you feel. You know, so often people don't want to confront others, but, you know, we need to be able to tell each other the truth in love. Right? And the two go hand in hand. You can't do one without the other. Truth without love is mean. Love without truth is mush. So you just, you can't do that. You have to do both. And... I think that um, uh, that was one of the first things I, I learned is that you you have to accept who you are. You know, God put you here for a reason. Don't deny that. Um, another great book I read was that's in this early in the early days was uh, uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Okay, great book. And he just talked about how you know the the fascinating story about survivors in the Nazi concentration camps you know it wasn't the ones that were treated better it was the ones that had purpose you know and they made it about serving others in the camp with them um, two more um, so for some reason remember M. Scott Peck wrote the book The Road Less Travel yes okay. he also wrote People of the Lie and I, I don't know. I was intrigued about reading uh, People of the Line. I read People of the Line. Boy, did it, wow, knock me off my feet. And that is when I learned um, why the, the depth of fear is uh, such, a, such, a, such a bad thing because it makes us do evil. You know, taken to an extreme, it makes us do evil. And uh, and that's where, you know, really selfishness. Uh, he helped me understand really what selfishness is all about. And then the, the, the last one, uh, the, the one that kind of kicked me over was um, Inside Out. Um, oh, man, who, sent, who wrote that book? Dr. David... Oh, I can't remember right now. I want to say Dr. Ch David Chapman. I don't think that's right, but it's Inside Out. And um, that book really taught me that um, I am not here for myself. You know, I am here for other people. 
uh, that this is about service to others, right? The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your mind, your soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's those two things. We don't have to really worry about the rest. And so, you know, those were really foundational books that helped me, you know, solidify and uh, mature my thinking about this. So I'm reading all this, and then uh, I stayed at the station another nine months, which was miserable. Then I went to work for a training company. Really loved that company. Loved the facilitator we had, the owner of the company. And I really believed in what we did. And what the, the company was about was teaching people new skill sets to make a difference you know, in their workplaces. But the problem was is that we weren't really dealing with changing their motivation, okay? We're dealing with giving them new skill sets, but not good reasons why to use them. And uh, so the promises we made with clients never really took place. And that's when I realized that it was the motivation behind the behavior that we had to pay attention to, not just the behavior. Um, so I stayed with them for about a year, and then I left. I needed a job, and I went back into radio. And uh, it was a smaller station. I hated it, and I wasn't making a lot of money, and so it's late 1991. And I go to the... The, our senior pastor at our church, and he and he had he and I had known each other for a little while, a couple of years. And uh, I said, Pastor Bill, I need some counsel. I said, um, uh, Here's my story. So I laid out the story. Uh, I've got this job. I'm working at a radio station right now. I can do it, but I've lost all passion for it. I really hate it, and it's not enough money. Um, you know, Krista's a stay-at-home mom, and we've got three kids under nine, and I need to take care of the family. And I said, I've got another job like it, but it's a guaranteed income. I could really use it. Uh, but again, it's just more of the same. And then I said, and I, now I've got a, a, this wild, crazy-haired idea to start my own business. But I don't have any training, education, background, history, nothing. I got nothing. And uh, he looked at me, and you know, and I, and I'm really, you know, I'm serious, I'm somber, I'm really looking for answers. And he goes, uh, "Mark, what would be fun?" And I looked at him, and I said, "What would be fun?" I said, "Pastor Bill, I'm not talking about having fun. I'm like, I was incredulous. I couldn't believe he asked, asked me that question." And he goes, "I don't know. I think God wants you to have fun." So I said, well, it would be, I guess it would be fun to start my own thing. But I told him I got nothing. And he said, well, you know, I think you got a decision to make. So I took that to heart. I went home, prayed about it with Krista. We talked about it. And I got to tell you to this day, so Krista also exemplifies what it means to believe in others uh, before they believe in themselves. Because she did that for me. And um, uh, either the next day or the day later, I quit my job. Wow. And now I didn't have anything, okay? I didn't have any clients. I had an idea, but I didn't have any clients, you know. And so um, I had a, a card table and a chair and a telephone. And um, I didn't have a typewriter, so I had to go to the public library locally. 
and I wrote up a one sheet. I still have a copy of it today, and it was four concepts that I thought I could teach in companies to start to move in this direction. So I went to five businesses that I knew of, and um, I needed $2,500 in January of 92 to, uh, to make it. If I didn't have that, it was going to be really bad. And so I went to five businesses. Out of the five, three said yes, and they agreed to pay me in advance. And it was $2,700. And so on January 4th, 1992, in Brookfield, Illinois, I stood in front of my you know, first company team and started talking about uh, these concepts. And that was 30 years ago. That is so amazing. I know that you've uh, encouraged us in a similar way to believe in ourselves before we, um, you believe in us before we believe in ourselves. And right. How could, how could I not, Jamie, after that story? Right. And then, <laughs> um, you know, encouraging, being really encouraging about it's what would be fun. And Mark, sometimes when you have six kids like we do, that sounds like a crazy no. question. Right. It sounds like a crazy question, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does. But it it really is the right question. And, you know, when I when I started, um, I really didn't know what I was doing, you know. I mean, and the people that, uh, the companies that hired me, I think they hired me purely on enthusiasm, you know. Um, but as I start, you know, what I really believed starting the business is that, if you make this about helping others succeed first, you don't make it about your own back pocket or money. If you make it about helping others succeed first, then you'll succeed. And it was really, really went back to 1 Corinthians 13, right? If you do anything without love, it doesn't mean anything, right? It's a clanging symbol and uh, or a bell. And, um, and so, you know, I really started to, uh, refine and do the work from that perspective. Um, you know, and, and you've heard, I think, a lot of my stuff, right? Uh, and I have some stuff today, right? I didn't have much stuff back then, but I have stuff today. And it's all central around that theme. And back when I started, I really believed it would make a difference. But after 30 years of doing this, you know, I know it makes a difference. And I've had the, I count what I do, uh, a tremendous privilege um, because I get a chance to do what I was created for every single day. And, uh, and I've had an opportunity to work with some tremendous people in some tremendous companies. And we've done some unbelievable work. Um, and I've, had, I've actually had people come back to me. And we've gone through some really, I mean, I've gone through some really difficult stuff. I, I'll, I'll just tell a quick, couple quick stories here. So I remember I was working for this uh, printing company, and uh, uh, the company wasn't doing well, and uh, and they were still, you know, investing in me, and uh, um, so uh, a buddy of mine went in. And I was working. I had worked with them for about twelve months. And uh, he went in and he audited their books and he came back out. He was a CPA. He came back out and he said, what are you doing? 
And I said, what do you mean? He said, what are you doing to these people? I said, well, I'm, I'm helping them. I said, Mark, they can't afford this, you know. And, and I tried to explain to him, I said, I understand this, but they're making an investment. And they have to make this investment not only in me. I mean, i got to get paid. And that's not the most important thing. But they need to make this investment for themselves. They need to believe that they can navigate these waters. Well, he was mad at me, you know, and it really impacted negatively our friendship. But after 18 months, right, we turned it around, started turning it around. And we worked together for the next three and a half years. I like what you're saying there, Mark, just thinking about that, even giving space for that 18 months and that three and a half years, because sometimes the question is, how long did it take us to get into this mess? You know, even personally, when we want to do this work personally, mm -hmm. it takes some time because it mm -hmm. you didn't create this mess overnight. No. No, and changing your thinking at a company level can be very, very difficult. And this was a family-owned business. So that puts English in everything, you know. But uh, the next three and a half years, they had the best growth, largest profits, best reputation they'd ever had. And and so every everything they invested in, all the struggle they went through, was taken care of in spades on the other side of the equation, you know. And and I've I've got story after story of companies that went from where the majority of people in the organization were self-serving to where the majority of the people in the organization served others. And it was some of the hardest, uh, most challenging, but most exciting and successful work some of these people have ever been a part of. And I've had a number of people in my career come back and tell me after, you know, and the, the hard thing for me is when we, when we take so much time to rebuild an organization from the inside out. Um, uh, another story, uh, I worked with this third party administrator. And uh, so I'll never forget, I met the president and the second in command and we're having lunch and they said, uh, we want to want to see if you can help us. I said, okay. And uh, they said, uh, we're fractured. And they proceeded to tell me that the team had come together young and they thought they were a team. But then fourth quarter hit, you know, and in third party administration, that's when the crunch hits. And, you know, the, the reason why teams break down is in many reasons because of unmet expectations. People think you're going to do something. You haven't really told them. They think you're going to do something, but you, they don't do it. You don't do it. And then you've let them down, right? So the team fractured right in half. So we started working together. And uh, again, 18 months. It took 18 months, you know, to get it all back to a great foundation. And this is where, you know, people are in it to help each other succeed. Teamwork is at a max. Productivity is sky high. They're growing. They're growing like crazy. Profitability is, you know, off the Richter scale. And all of a sudden, the silent partner decides that. So this is the message. I can't believe it. To this day, I can't believe this. He comes in. He goes, um, uh, I have to get involved. And we said, why? 
isn't this working out for you? Isn't this going well? He said, yeah, but this is becoming too big a part of my portfolio. Okay. Well, okay, but it's working. Why, you know? So lo and behold, lo and behold, he gets involved. And what does he do? He demotes the president, fires me, and invests in a god-awful amount of money in uh, software that they didn't need. Okay. Over the next two years, totally dismantled what we have to, what we built. Right. This is, uh, and then I had a number of people in that organization come back to me and say, that was one of the greatest experiences of my life, is being able to build something like that. The rest of the story is he dismantled it, turns around and sells it. Six, so this is two years and six months after we hit our peak, right, in culture, everything else. What happens? Fist fight breaks out on the floor of the company that acquired them. That's how far it fell, you know. And that's the thing. If you if you make this about money, if you make this about something other than helping others succeed, it's not going to turn out well. You can, yeah, you can make money. There's no doubt about, about that. But you'll never have the complete success that you can have uh, when you make it about helping others succeed first and you commit yourself to doing right by others. And like I say, I've been a part of some tremendous stories um, that I count dear to myself. And so that, you know, when we talk about coaching today and what it means to be a coach, um, like I say, I am honored and privileged to be able to do this every day. And I, I've paid a dear price uh, to, to get to this spot. You know, um, your husband and I were talking about this <laughs> and he was telling me about a company that, uh, does coaching certification. You know, I think we've talked about this. And I said, really, there's a certification program for coaches. And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, what do they say? Well, they say you have to go through this. You have to either go through this curriculum or you have to create a curriculum or, and then you can get be certified as a coach. I said, cool. Do I, you know, can I be grandfathered in or something or do I have to do something? And well, according to this, you have to do something. I said, I asked him, I said, so Kevin, how long has this company been around? He said, 27 years. I said, I guess I'm good. I've been around 30, so... So that's I got my certification. That's awesome. How if you if you know, do you know yeah. how many coaching sessions, like how many does that add up to? What like you know, they want hours of service. <laughs> hours of service? Oh, I tried to figure this out once and I, I'm probably I'm, I don't know. So thirty years. I have probably averaged at least 15 meetings a week. Wow. Okay. So that's 750 meetings a year on average. Um, you know, times 30 years, well, that's 21, 22, 23,000. That's amazing. Uh, hours of coaching, whether it's group or individual. And how many social you know, media? How many social media ads did you do? Uh, uh, none. <laughs> <laughs> the the new coaches coming into the scene today are being told, you know, create a course, do social media ads, and that's not at all what you're 
experience has been. It wasn't my path. I'm sure that some of that works. You know, I'm sure you could, you know, that's a path you, and, and maybe it's a more uh, efficient path, but that wasn't my path, you know. And, and I really learned early on. So I believe that in order to serve others, um, to, right, and we're teaching others to pay their price to be successful, right? That, that's what you're actively involved in right now. And so people have to pay their price to be successful. Well, what that means in my world, you know, and again, I, maybe I did it too long, too slow, I don't know. But um, is that I've paid the price to be successful. You know, I've driven the miles. I, I remember I had a client in Minneapolis, and I would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and drive to Minneapolis for a 9 o'clock meeting. Uh, I remember um, I had to meet with a team uh, long ago, a corporate team, and the only time they could meet was 3 o'clock in the morning. So I'd meet them at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I mean, I've, I've met whenever people have needed it. I've done some very, I would tell you, very challenging, taken on very challenging, difficult situations. So, you know, if you, if you approach this job, if you approach the job of coaching uh, that makes it about serving other people, then it's not going to fit easily into a box. Um, so one more story. So this was a tough one. And this was early on. This was uh, uh, 1992. So it's my first, this is my, within my first six months. And um, I'm doing one-on-ones at this accounting firm. And I always do one-on-ones with the group I'm going to work with because I want to look at life through their eyes and be able to understand where they're coming from. And um, um, I, I sit, I'm sitting across from this young woman. She's just recently joined the firm. And, you know, and I'm just, hey, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Lo- love to hear your story. What would you like to share about yourself? And uh, she doesn't answer. Okay. And I wait. I wait just a little bit. Give her some time. Um, I'm sorry. Is there anything holding you back? I mean, what would you like to tell me? I'd like to learn more about you. And that's what I'm here for. And all of a sudden, she starts to break down a little bit. And, and, you know, again, I don't know what's going on at all. But, again, my trying to uh, make sure I'm compassionate and empathetic, I said, is there anything I can help you with? What's what's going on? And she proceeds to tell me that two weeks earlier she had been raped. And she hadn't told anybody else. I was the first person she had told. Wow. And um, I said, wow, I am so sorry to hear that. I w- you know, we have resources here. Let's get, let's get people involved. So, you know, the person that had brought me in, I went out and got her. I brought her in. And we proceeded to get this young woman, you know, the help she needed, you know, as, as much as humanly possible. Um, so when that first happened, I, you know, I kind of asked, you know, you know, God, why that? Why you know, because I, I felt ill-equipped to, to respond appropriately to this young woman. But it happened on my watch. And I think that's, that's what coaching is really about, from what I can tell, you know, from my experience, is that is 
we're supposed to be here for other people. We're supposed to believe in them before they believe in themselves. We're supposed to help them uh, succeed. And in helping them succeed, we succeed. And, you know, one thing I tell people all the time is that, you know, do not give undue power or influence to those who cannot or will not have your best interest at heart. And, you know, my commitment as a coach in the life of my clients and the people I work with is that I will believe in you before you believe in yourself. And I will believe longer than the doubters doubt. And that's how I built my success after 30 years. Mark, I really appreciate you telling that story and sharing all of the other stories along the way. This is huge for just awareness in the coaching industry in general because there are a lot there's a lot of noise and I would love for this message to be shared to help others on their journey. Well and I and you know I believe in you before you believe in yourself. And I'm really glad, Jamie, that you're on the front end of this. Uh, we need more good coaches out in the world. Uh, there's far more work than any one person could possibly do. And so uh, I'm excited to be a part of your journey. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much.